Excuses. Excuses. I'd like to believe, but... I would believe if God showed up and did a miracle. Then I'd believe. Um, I'd like to believe, but I'm afraid of what other people might say. I'd like to stand up for Jesus, but I'm afraid of what my friends might think. I'm afraid of losing my job. I'm afraid of being mocked and ridiculed. The things that might hold us back from starting the Christian life or from living the Christian life are the same in century 21 as they were in century 1. And that's why we're looking at the Bible, because God is timeless. And although His Word has been written down for thousands of years, He organized what was written down so that it would feed His people all over time and history. And so what we read here this morning from about, what, 32 A.D. or thereabouts, or maybe 29 A.D., um, thereabouts, uh, is as relevant in 2017 as it was then. Jesus is still a great Savior. People still make poor excuses and we still need to respond. We need to respond to Jesus and we need to respond to the world in which we live. So, this is where we're going this morning. John. John, John's a wonderful writer. What he does in his gospel, he wants us to believe. He tells us at the end, I'm writing these things so that you may believe. But he also knows that lots of people won't believe. And he records that in his gospel, A, so that we're not shocked, and B, so that we can understand why people don't believe, and so that people can see that their unbelief isn't valid. And so first of all in the chapter he shows us that Jesus is a great saviour. Jesus is a great saviour. And we're really recapping what we looked at the last time. Jesus heals a man who was born blind. It's emphasised five times in the chapter that he was born blind. Because nowhere in ancient history was it ever recorded that anyone born blind was made to see. It was utterly unheard of. And because of all we know of science, because of our increased knowledge of science, we understand that this is an incredible miracle that Jesus performs. Let me remind you of some of the things we thought of last time, that we know from our understanding of eyesight and the brain what that makes this spectacular. Not only did his eyes have to be healed, but his optic nerve will have been damaged by non-use over the long decades of this man's life. Not only that, but the neurons in the brain will have been reassigned by the brain to perform other functions. So they will, not only will the eye need to be healed, the optic nerve need to be healed, not only will the neurons need to be reassigned to the function of sight, but they will need to be reprogrammed from whatever other function they were doing to function um, for the man's sight, 
And not only that, his mind will need to be filled with a catalogue of imagery so that he can understand what he sees. And all that happens in an instant when Jesus heals the man. He knew how complex it was because he's the maker of the universe. We know something of how complex it is because of medical advances. But it happens like that. The man sees. And it's an astonishing miracle. And this miracle is a picture. Jesus, in his miracles, is not doing random acts of kindness. Jesus is demonstrating that he is who he says he is. The miracles are proof that he is the Messiah, God's messenger, God's rescuer. He has said in John's gospel that he is the light of the world. That echoes what was said about the Messiah in Isaiah chapter 9, that the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. The people living in the land of darkness, a light has dawned. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. Is there any better way to prove that than by taking a man who walks in darkness, who has lived in a land of darkness all his life, and enabling him to see, to cause his eyes to be flooded with light in all its colors and all its wonder. And Jesus does this. Jesus does this for him. Not just simply to help this man, but as a little miniature picture of his mission. And as proof that he is the one that Isaiah foretold in, not just in Isaiah 9, but in Isaiah 42. And the psalmist foretold in Psalm 146, he will give the blind their sight. The bowed down he will raise up. And here's our Savior. Here's Jesus. If you're not yet a Christian this morning, here's evidence that he is who he says he is, that he is the one who can bring light, not just into physical darkness, but into spiritual darkness. He's the one who can bring light into any dark circumstance in our lives. Whatever darkness you may be facing, know this, that nothing is too black for him. Perhaps this morning some of you think of family members who aren't Christians and you think they they just can't see it. And that's true. Well, who can open their eyes? Jesus Christ can and does. He is the one who can bring light in the darkness. He is the one who can cause the blind to see. And that should give us hope for any dark circumstances we find ourselves in. That should give us encouragement as we look at those around us who don't know Jesus as their Savior. He is the one who can open eyes. He is the one who brings light. What a great Savior we have. And this miracle is so astonishing that you would think people would be flocking to believe. But John records for us something that is equally astonishing. There is not a flock of people rushing to believe. There is a gathering of people who are looking around, as it were, for reasons not to believe. And that brings us, secondly, to poor excuses. 
And John tells us this so that we won't be surprised that we live in a world where people don't flock to Jesus to believe. People will always find reasons to disbelieve. There are four interactions that go on here with really three sets of people. There's the neighbours, there's the religious leaders, and there's the parents. Next week, God willing, we'll come back to the, 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 um, the interaction between Jesus and the man. But for this week, we're going to look at the unbelieving reactions. Next week, the believing reaction. And we want to see these sets of excuses that are the same really in century 1 as they are in century 21. There's those with a closed mind. Now, not all the neighbours had a closed mind. Some recognise uh, this man and say, this is, this is the man who was begging. And some say, yes, it is. And others go, not only looks like him. Um, and then the man says, no, it is me. It is me. I think there's something almost comical about verse 9. That he would say, no, 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 it's not him. can't be him. It only looks like him. And the man has to go, no, no, it is me. Hello, I'm here. Stop talking about me. Let, let me answer for myself. I can assure you it is me. But what's, what's interesting about all of this is when he assures them that it is him, what do they do? Well, they want to find out a bit more. But then it's left there. It's just left there. It's not followed up on. And that's partly John's point is each of these groups of people are left in their unbelief. They don't take it any further. There's something, there's something of the modern mindset about some of these neighbors. The sort of people who would say, I, I can't believe in miracles. I just, I just couldn't believe in miracles. The sort of people that, that have a worldview that only focuses on what we'll call the natural, that doesn't allow anything supernatural to, to be part of what they consider. And they look only at what can be measured and what can be assessed by science. You know, when I'm teaching RE uh, on a Thursday morning, um, the guy said to me a couple of weeks ago, he said, but, but water doesn't turn into wine. I said, yes, that's right. If it did turn into wine, it would be called normal. Because it doesn't normally turn into wine, it's called a miracle. When it does happen, miracles are things that don't normally happen. Ah, but sir, you know, a virgin doesn't give birth to a child. Yeah, that's the point. It's meant to be unusual. It's meant to be surprising. And there's something of that mindset here. No, no, it only looks like him. It only looked like wine. It only looked as if, you know, Jesus walked on water. Those are the sort of objections that are made where people have an, uh, an overly anti-supernatural view. They say they, they won't allow there to be anything outside of what they can see, touch, and feel. Same in century one. We can't say these people were naive and gullible. Somebody says, oh, I was, made, I was blind and now I can see. They go, yeah, you just look like him. You just look, look like the blind guy. You're not really him. You're trying to con us. Or somebody might say, if I saw a miracle, I'd believe. Really? 
These people saw an incredible miracle. And they're not flocking to put their trust in Jesus. That's the pattern throughout John's Gospel. People see miracles and many of them don't believe. People ate the miraculous food at the feeding of the 5,000. They weren't interested in believing in Jesus. They simply wanted his power in their lives. They wanted to make him king so they could do lots of nice stuff for them. And all through the Old Testament, miracles were seen. Most notably by the children of Israel in the book of Exodus coming out of Egypt. Did they all believe? No, they were famous for their disbelief. So people who say, if I saw a miracle, I would then believe. No, they wouldn't. They would find another reason, another way to discount what God is doing. Here's the problem of a closed mind. Or there's the problem of religious pride. Religious pride with the Pharisees, these religious leaders. These religious leaders do look at the supernatural, but through their own little grid. They look at the supernatural and they look at God, but it's not shaped by God's Word. They limit who God is and what God could do. They, they look at God as if you relate to God by how well you perform. And if God, as if God only blesses those who are good. And we see in their reaction to this man here that they are not so much interested in the miracle, they're interested in how it happened. The man comes to him and they say to him, How did this happen? Verse 15, How he had received his sight. Well, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and now I can see. Aha, they say. He made mud on the Sabbath. Well, that's, a, that's forbidden. That's breaking the Sabbath law. Now, the Sabbath law said nothing about making mud on the Sabbath. It said nothing about it. Yet these religious leaders had taken God's law and they had added to it their law. And when Jesus broke their law that they had added to God's law, they said, oh, this man is a sinner. This man isn't performing the way God wants him to perform or the way we want him to perform. Therefore, he can't be from God. They had taken God's word and they had added all their own words to it. And if you didn't keep their words the way they kept their words, you weren't good enough for them and you weren't good enough for God. And they can say about Jesus, verse 24, We know this man is a sinner. And then verse 34, they ditch the blind man himself. They, they throw him out and they say, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And again, they're taking God's word and they're distorting it. They have a view that the good are blessed 
and those who are not blessed are not good. The Bible doesn't teach that. But because these religious people have a view that says, if I do my best, God will be pleased with me. Aha, there's somebody that's blind from birth. God mustn't be pleased with them. They must have been sinful from birth. I'm better than them. Get out from amongst us, they say. Do you see how their religious pride enables them to discount the blind man? He must be wicked because he's been blind from birth. He must be steeped in sin from his birth. We're not like that. We are much better than him. They discount the blind man. And they discount Jesus himself. Oh, he made mud on the Sabbath day. What a wicked man. He cannot be from God. Because we would never have made mud. What was the big issue about making mud? Well, it was because in the law they were forbidden to knead and to make bread. And it was the same action that was involved in in taking the the mud and the saliva and kneading it together and putting it in the man's eyes. They were forbidden to make bricks on the Sabbath. And here was mud and clay being made. And they, they were taking... Those were their laws that they added to God's Word so that they could have this sense of, I'm impressing God. And oh, what a dangerous mix you have. When you mix religious performance with human pride, you then start to think, well, I don't need a Savior. And then you start to think that I can impress God myself doing it my way. And when you think you can impress God yourself doing it your way, the last thing that you can contemplate is that there could be a way to God that bypasses all your efforts, that would even say to you that your efforts are like filthy rags, that would allow a blind man whom you think is a nobody to be blessed by God, who did nothing and God has blessed him. How preposterous is that if you believe that God only blesses those who are worthy of it? You can't afford to contemplate that God might bless somebody who's sinful and needs help. You can't afford to contemplate. You can't afford to contemplate that God would just break into somebody's life and bring life and light and hope. What did they do to deserve it? Nothing. That's the point. God is gracious. But if we have built up A view that says, how I perform is how God accepts me, or why God accepts me, then you will always stumble over a Jesus who doesn't treat us as our sins deserve, but who is gracious and forgiving, who tells us that we are much worse than we'd ever imagined, but that we could be more loved than we ever dreamt was possible. And we see we see how hard it is for these religious people to turn their thinking around. But if they had kept in line with God's word, their thinking wouldn't need 
to have been turned around. And we live in a world where people of every persuasion can feel that they are closer to God because of how well they live. They're not like that person over there. They're not like them. And it's John saying to us here, those people will find it very hard to turn and put their trust in Christ. It's going to take a miracle. But then it always takes a miracle. But doesn't this help us see where in particular they stumble? Why in particular they find it hard to put their trust in Jesus? And we live in a very religious culture. We live in a culture where there are good church-going Protestants who think that they are going to heaven because they go to church. We live in a culture where there are good Catholic people who think that they are right with God because they perform all the right religious duties. And both sets of those people will find the idea of grace offensive because it completely cuts across their religious viewpoint. It means they're going to have to turn it upside down and back to front. And that's what we need to help them see. We need to help the first set of people see that there is more to life than simply what we can see. There is something supernatural in this world. We need to help the next group of people see that grace Grace is how God works, not performance. And then there's a third excuse that people can have that we see here. Social fear. Social fear. The man's parents are called in. And they're asked a question in verse 19. Is this your son? (laughs) You know, the Pharisees are really scraping the bottom of the barrel. They're they're thinking, maybe this isn't, maybe, right, he's, maybe he wasn't born blind. Let's, let's get the parents in. We'll catch him out now. Watch this, how embarrassed he'll be as, as the parents are going to go, no, oh, I've never seen him before in our lives. We don't know who he is. And they come in and they say, no, 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 he is our son. He is our son. But then notice how cagey they get. We know he's our son. We know he was born blind. But how he can see now? Or who opened his eyes? We don't know. Ask him. Ask him. He's big enough. He can speak for himself. And then we're told by John, his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. Aha. Now we know why they're cagey. Here we see what a powerful thing Societal pressure is. It's not just being thrown out of a church. The whole of life revolved round the religious festivals, revolved round being part of the church. This would have been social pressure. This would have been familial abandonment there. Their family would have wanted nothing to do with them. It would have implications for their work. People wouldn't want to employ them or go to their business anymore. It has serious implications 
for these people. It would be easy to say that the parents should have been jumping up and down for joy that their, their son can see. It would be easy to say that. And they probably were happy. But yet, do you see how paralyzing and how very real this fear is? And it holds them back. And it's sad, isn't it? It's tragic when fear of people hold us back or hold people back from acknowledging Jesus and holds them back from eternal life. And I think we live again in a culture where that's a very real fear from two angles. We live in a culture where the majority of people come from a Catholic background. And we need to realize that for them to reconsider everything has huge implications for them as individuals and in their families. Implications that they need to think over, implications that they might be afraid of. Also, we live in a culture where there is great pressure particularly put on our young people from a secular viewpoint not to put their trust in Jesus. You don't want to be different. You don't want to believe any of that stuff. Young people, you're under pressure to stand for everything that the world says. And the Bible calls you to follow what God says. And there's a very real pressure, an intimidating pressure, to keep your head down, to duck, and to try and keep a low profile and don't take any opinion that goes against what everybody else is saying. And that's a very, very real pressure. And there's a fear of loneliness, a fear of mockery, a fear of exclusion that comes with that. What will people say? What will they think of me? There's too much to lose. And this man here says to you, don't step back. Don't duck. Stand for Jesus. Who cares if they throw you out? Who cares if you're excluded, he says. It's worth it. It's worth it. A friend of mine became a Christian at 17. And her mum wasn't amused. In fact, her mum was furious about it. And she said to her, if you keep going to church, you you can't live here anymore. So she went off to church one morning and came back And all her stuff was packaged up, packed up, sitting at the front door. And that was it. She's put Jesus first. She's kept on putting Jesus first. She's still doing that to this day. Because she knows, like this man, that you can't let fear ruin eternity. You can't let people who live for a moment ruin you forever. It's hard, yes, but go 
and look at the 160,000 Christians who were martyred last year for their faith. And they say to you, it's worth it. It's hard, but it's worth it. And it puts whatever we have to face in perspective, doesn't it? Poor excuses. Poor excuses that, that would keep us from following Jesus. They don't, they don't hold water. They don't carry any weight in the long run. Let me urge you to let nothing stand in your way. And that's what this man says to us as we finish with a great response. We have a great response from him. We're going to come back to him next week again. What is his great response? It's two parts to it. He doesn't give up. And he doesn't shut up. You see? He doesn't give up. And he's not silent. He presses on. You can see the man growing in the chapter. You can actually see him growing in the chapter. He starts off, who is this man that healed you? Verse 11, oh, the man they called Jesus. Verse 17, who is this man? He's a prophet. Verse 23, this man is from God. Verse 38, he's bowing and worshipping. You know, when you press on with following Jesus, even in the midst of opposition, You grow. You grow. Jesus sees to it that you grow in your faith. This man doesn't let their hostility of the religious leaders put him off. He doesn't let the lack of support from his parents deter him. He doesn't let the lack of interest from his neighbors who just, oh yeah, blind man sees, oh, back to work. What's for tea? He doesn't let that Put him off. Jesus is for him. And you see his determination in his retort uh, to the religious leaders. He's feisty. I like him. Have, I, I have told you already. And you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you too want to become his disciples? And I love that little word too. Do you want to become his disciples too? He counts himself as one of Jesus' disciples already. He's not fully there yet. We'll get to that next week. But he's, he counts himself as a disciple. I, I'm for Jesus. I'm going to let nothing put me off. Are you searching this morning? Keep searching and don't let anything put you off. Are you weary this morning? Keep going. Don't let anything put you off. And particularly to our young people this morning, keep going and don't let the pressure of people around you the expectation of society, the pressure on social media to have the right opinions keep you from following Jesus. Press on. See his determination. And then listen to him. Listen to him as he keeps on speaking. But look at what he says. He has some answers in verse 30 to 33. He has some answers. But surely the most powerful thing that he says is in verse 25. One thing I do know. I was blind, but now I see. There there are many questions that people will have 
that we will not have the answer to. But we have got what Jesus has done for us. And that cannot be refuted. And they might say, look, we know that miracles don't happen. And you say, one thing I know. I used to be this. And now I'm this. One thing I know. I couldn't have coped with those circumstances in my life. I couldn't cope with them now were it not for Jesus working in me. One thing I know. Sometimes we feel we don't have the answers. Your life, if you're a Christian, is the answer. This man was a walking, living, breathing, speaking miracle. If you're a Christian, so are you. So are you. One thing I know, what is it for you? It may be something fairly dramatic. One thing I know, I was an addict, but Christ has freed me and changed me and transformed me. One thing I know, I was without hope in this world, and Christ came and has given me hope. One thing I know, I was crushed by guilt, and Christ has set me free from guilt. One thing I know, these circumstances that have been going on and on and on in my life, I couldn't have coped were it not for Jesus Christ. And you know because you can see that I'm coping, you can say to people, you can see that I still have joy. We can speak about our experience. People can see the change in you and the difference in you. Speak. When we get opportunities to speak, sometimes we're busy thinking, what's the answer? This man didn't actually bother about the answer. He told them about himself and what he had experienced of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're to do. And notice that it didn't actually change anyone. It's not his job, it's not your job, and it's not my job to change people. That's Jesus' job. He opens eyes. He opens the eyes of the blind. So how are we to live in this world of where we have a great Savior and yet there is great unbelief? Well, we press on. We don't give up and we speak up. We keep speaking about what he said. Let's not let the excuses that the world makes put us off. They're the same in century 21 as they were in century 1. And our task is to live for Jesus and to speak our story of what he's done in our lives and leave it to him to open the eyes of the blind. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that we have a great Savior. Help us to live for him. Help us to see that the excuses that people make today, the reasons for unbelief that they have today, are as weak today as they were in century one. But help us not to get dispirited or discouraged. Help us to keep on pressing on ourselves. And help us to live and speak for Jesus. 
knowing that Jesus will use that and can use that to open the hearts and minds of those around us, to bring light and life into their lives. Father, we pray in particular for our young people in the fellowship here, that they would have steel in their backbones, the courage of their convictions, to stand with grace and with love and with gentleness, but with strength as well in this world that would seek to batter their uh, their convictions out of them, that would seek to bend them and bow them to the ways of this world. Father, give them courage and give them their convictions and give them the strength to stand and the wisdom to know how best to speak. Father, we ask that for all of us. In Jesus' name, amen.